Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. Last week, we started our new podcast season by launching a series of interviews on the theme of the most recent issue of Beeson Magazine, Singing the Faith. You can read the whole magazine online at beesondivinity.com slash Magazine. We spoke last week with Tyshawn Gardner, a Beeson alumnus and new professor at Samford, on the role hymns have played in African-American Christianity. This week, we continue our Singing the Faith series with a guest who has written on worship in the Old Testament. Before Kristen introduces him, let me remind you that we're just under a month away from a new fall semester. We have a lot of exciting events and happenings at Beeson. If you are interested in staying up to date with what's going on, we have a new e-newsletter for you. Visit BeesonDivinity.com media to subscribe and stay abreast of all that God is doing here. All right, Kristen, who is this dear friend sitting next to you, ready to inform us on the theme of biblical worship? Thanks, Doug. Today on the show, we have Dr. Kenneth Matthews. Dr. Matthews has served on our faculty since 1989, teaching Old Testament and Hebrew, and just recently retired at the end of this academic year. Dr. Matthews contributed an article to the Visa Magazine and was interviewed by me about his tenure for the issue. So we asked Dr. Matthews to come on the show today to reflect on his time at Beeson to discuss worship in the Old Testament and to tell us what he is looking forward to next in retirement. Dr. Matthews, thank you for coming on the show today. It's so good to have you. So enjoyable to be here. I love to be on campus, see friends like yourselves, Dean Doug, and also Kristen, two people who really make this place shake. Mm. And so it's good to be. Shake in a good way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. Well, um, you are a dear friend, as uh, Dr. Sweeney has already said. And as we begin, we want to take this opportunity to um, allow our listeners to get to know you better. So would you mind giving us a glimpse into your life? Anything that you want to say about your childhood, coming to faith in Christ, your wife, family? Okay, well, I'm a Texan. Yeah, growing up in Texas, we thought we, we were pretty big stuff. In fact, uh, we were a little challenged by Alaska coming into the United States. <laughs> uh, but the, the joke was, well, just wait till the snow melts. And then we were in good shape. But Dallas is not the Dallas people think of. I was reared in Dallas, did most of my education in Dallas. Uh, the Dallas I was reared in in the 1950s and 1960s, that was before we had the uh, Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> That's before we had DFW Airport and so much of what became the megaplex, Dallas-Fort Worth. And uh, DFW was not uh, built until 1974. I was 24 years old. Uh, Love Field 
was our place. Mm -hmm. I guess the most memorable thing in terms of my childhood was in 1963. I was 13 years of age. Uh, we were given an opportunity at school to go downtown and see the president, John Kennedy. So a buddy and I did just that. Jumped on a bus, went down there. We enjoyed seeing the president, uh, and uh, but also we took in a hot dog and a, a movie as well. But I'll never forget the trauma of the city, and of course it raced across the world in 1963, something uh, I'll not forget, and the subsequent events that immediately followed. It was the same year, if you recall, for the March on Washington and uh, by Dr. King. 1963 was an important year in my life. So that's in, that's in my mind. And uh, so much of uh, what we had in that life was definitely, I guess I, I would say, it was a, a church culture. And it was very civil. It was not the Deep South. Boy, did I have an awakening when I came in 1989. The Deep South. The scars of racism were so deeply embedded and are deeply embedded. I guess that uh, I was just out of touch. Uh, maybe as a teenager, I didn't pay as much attention. It seems that in um, Dallas, we did not have that kind of tension like I felt when I came here. In fact, uh, my wife spent uh, five years in San Antonio. The racism there was against the Hispanic community more so than the black community. So that do, those kinds of things come to my mind. Dr. Matthews, I have found that out in the churches, lots of people are very impressed by anybody who can read the Old Testament in Hebrew. And we both know that lots of first-year seminarians are very uh, frightened yes. of their Hebrew professors. And here we have yes. a, a real-life Hebrew professor sitting <laughs> at the table with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in studying Hebrew and the Old Testament. Did you grow up thinking, I'm going to study Hebrew, or did you fall into it, or how did it happen? Well, there was some falling involved. Uh, one thing I point to is my mother was a uh, teacher of Sunday school. She started when she was 17 years of age. I think that about oh, when she turned 93 or so, she decided to let that go. She felt so sorry for those old people. Anyway, I remember so many Saturday evenings. She'd be giving herself to her study for the next day. And uh, she loved history. She loved the Old Testament. So I think I got some of those vibrations. Mm. And uh, then when I was in um, seminary, I just seemed to do better, maybe because of focus or investment in Old Testament and in Hebrew. So that's uh, how that came to pass. And it turned out that it was a very rich and enriching uh, preparation for what I've done in my whole life. Tell our listeners, uh, for those who don't know, about your work in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Well, just as a reminder, the Dead Sea Scrolls were the most important discovery in the 20th century. 
these scrolls were located near the Dead Sea in the honeycomb cliffs that overlook uh, the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. And they contain both biblical manuscripts and also sectarian non-biblical manuscripts. These were produced, we think, by a mixture of various ideas, like what you would find among the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. So uh, we just call them Qumranites because the location at the floor of the caves was Qumran. <laughs> so these are the Qumranites. Yeah, the 11th cave was re, uh, searched out in 1956, and from it came a cache of important manuscripts. They were assigned in 1967 when the Israelis took over the Rockefeller uh, Old City, Rockefeller Museum, and uh, at that time the Jordanians had control but it passed over to the Israelis. And one of the scholars that received a manuscript of the book of Leviticus, David Noel Friedman, who was an editor, people may know, of the Anchor Bible commentary series, the Anchor Bible Dictionary. He was editor of it, and he was given the opportunity to study that firsthand. Well, I studied with him. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so uh, that's where you have this saying, I fell upstairs on that one. Mm -hmm. So I suggested to him that maybe he could get that off his plate if he'd let me have it on my plate. So I worked for uh, two, two and a half years on that scroll from photographs and then being in, in place. And then we co-authored it as a monograph. So that is on... Uh, the book of Leviticus and the paleography, the spellings, the nature of the leather, all pointed to it being probably the oldest witness we had to the book of Leviticus. And it wasn't a full scroll like the great Isaiah scroll. It, uh, like most of the scrolls, was a scroll that was maybe a yard in length and then a whole bunch of pieces. And uh, so the date on that would have been about 100 B.C. So I studied it from a variety of angles, such as its uh, spelling patterns, paleography, its textual readings. So very close to what we already had. That was uh, a thousand years later. <laughs> so um, it was an encouragement from that perspective. Mm. But it's not surprising. It wasn't exact. It's the very same. There were some distinguishing marks about it. That's fascinating. Wish I could have been there with you. Yes, I could have used your help. <laughs> <laughs> I have a different kind of history question for you, yes. a little bit more modern history. You know, as you've been retiring this year, we've had occasion to reflect on the history mm -hmm. of Beast and Divinity School mm -hmm. a number of times. Uh, and I have found myself saying to groups of people that Dr. Ken Matthews is a pillar of this place. He, along with Dr. Frank Thielman, was one of the first two full-time permanent faculty members who were brought here by 
Dr. George. Mm-hmm. Beeson was founded in 88, and you arrived in, in 89, 1989. Mm-hmm. Why'd you come? What was it about either Dr. George and his winsomeness uh, mm-hmm. or the vision he cast for what he felt like the Lord wanted to do through Beeson Divinity School that was uh, a strong enough enticement to get Ken Matthews to come to Birmingham? Well, I guess like most things in life, there are a number of factors that come together at just that right moment, God times. One thing that was very attractive to me was it was a a novel enterprise. Maybe not uh, uniquely novel, but how in the world in those years would a university dare to start a divinity school? Mm. Oh, that's antiquarian. It's quaint, but we really don't need any of those to progress in our knowledge, our advanced um, ideas. Well, that didn't hinder Mr. Beeson. Mr. Beeson was all about promoting the kingdom of God through what he loved, the, the church and education, in particular Christian education. So what was attractive about it was what uh, I had heard uh, Dean George say from time to time. It was an experiment. Here was the founding of a divinity school that was interdenominational, founded on a historically Baptist campus university, and it was also thoroughly evangelical. Mm And its curriculum was not precisely an imitation of an, what had been the traditional curriculum, but very close to it, with its emphasis on the things that I felt like I was best prepared to contribute, and that would be biblical studies and the study of the languages and helping people be better preachers and servants uh, to the church. And although I'd had opportunities to go into uh, programs where uh, PhD work was uh, very important, and I did do some adjunctive work in that, I never really had a heart for it. My heart was always for uh, the church and how that was uh, being uh, supported by Uh, Christian education, in particular, the study of the scriptures, and to do so with uh, greater competency. My goal was not to um, form myself in them, but rather that uh, they could use the Hebrew and Greek tools effectively. They could read commentaries intelligently and things of that order. But you have to have that equipment to do the surgery. Mm -hmm. And so that's what attracted me. Of course, it was well-funded at that time. And don't let that put anybody off. You want to keep funding because we kept growing. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And funding is important for us to expand our programs and ideas the Lord has for us to do. And then, of course, Dean George is a remarkable leader. And uh, we rallied around him in those early years. And our students 
took a step of faith by going to a, a new school. And as a result, they had a real intentional commitment. It was not a convenience for all of them. And uh, it was the students who were really open to the way in which God had worked through the church historically, yeah. a great emphasis that we find in our school, to all the good. Uh, I loved my seminary that I attended. I was very helped by it in every way. But it was um, not emphasizing, I think, our great historic tradition in the church. Mm. And the chapel itself is a tribute to that in our curriculum in um, history and doctrine. It's a beautiful way in which we are teaching theology. And um, Dean Doug could speak much more in a lengthy and informed way about all of this. Mm. But I found everybody coming on the faculty really appreciate that and it's been a growing experience i went to a non-denominational seminary and uh, i was reared in a southern baptist environment so uh, i was very intrigued and open to other denominations and knew that if i came here i would learn a great deal about my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and other venues, uh, other places of service. And I have really grown through the years just listening and um, overseeing uh, the shoulder of the great scholars and the other traditions and um, enjoyed the core, the core, uh, the evangelical centerpiece uh, around which we can all uh, come together in a collective body and, and worship too. I mean, we have people from all kinds of ecclesial life through these decades. And if I had been, I think, in one of uh, the denominational seminaries, I don't think I would have heard some of these folk coming through that we've enjoyed, hmm. been enriched by. Well, you've just summed up for our listeners the answer to why Beeson, <laughs> yes. uh, really emphasizing our distinctives and mm -hmm. what makes us um, who we are. And you have contributed so much of that, uh, of who we are in mm -hmm. your, your role here at Beeson and so grateful for your 34 years of service. So thank you. Thank you. Moving now to the Beeson Magazine and the article that you contributed, you wrote an article called Worship in the mm -hmm. Old Testament. And this uh, came from an excerpt from a longer piece mm -hmm. that you had written for a book honoring Dr. George. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you can tell for our listeners about uh, this article and what you're trying to address as it relates to worship in the Old Testament and what we can learn from the Old Testament as Christians today as we worship the Lord. Well, I think of the Old Testament as the manger in which our Lord Jesus rested. How can you possibly grow in any way? I mean, you can get the, the most fundamental picture of Christ our Lord, but to, to grow in that, you would welcome the Old Testament, which uh, nurtures our Christian gospel. So in doing so about uh, worship, 
we're not surprised that there is continuity, as theologians like to use that term. There are lines, threads from old across the Testaments to the new, and uh, those are most uh, readily of interest, of course, to us as Christian readers. And also there's some differences, significant differences, discontinuities. And uh, what I found for many, unfortunately, is some misunderstandings of how all that comes to, to pass. And uh, I think the best way to understand it is how in the Old Testament there was an emphasis on the drama, the symbol, the portrayal. I spoke of it as choreography. All of the moving parts were uh, heavy laden with meaning, significance. And when it comes to the understanding of worship in the New Testament with the founding and the uh, richness of the synagogue experience, it was only natural to be continuity with uh, the early church and its Jewish founders. So when it comes to looking at that pattern, we'll see those continuities. Where I think there might be some confusion is that now we have in the incarnational Christ, not so great an emphasis, do we, on the place. That was very important in the culture of the ancient Near East, the sacred place. It was very important in all religious centers. And what you'll find, I think, today is, again, much of that in religions of different uh, sorts. What is distinctive, unique to the Christian faith is that the meeting place with God is in the person of Jesus Christ. The place is the person. And that's why the identity is so important when it comes to Christ. His, his teachings, of course, are given by God and of uh, great value in every way. Wouldn't want to diminish that. But there could be people who follow his teachings but don't follow him. <laughs> and so um, that's important for us to remember how Jesus speaks to that on several occasions, but especially when he identifies himself as the temple. And then again in John 4, where he, with the woman at the well, makes it quite clear that the uh, temple will not survive, but what he came to offer would survive in himself. So I think we come to the Old Testament wisely if we understand where you're reading it from a great advantage, great advantage. We are reading it through the eyes of Jesus and the apostles. And they have some great commentaries when they teach and speak on how we can use their framework and their prism for understanding and appreciating and embracing the Old Testament. Some people think that the Old Testament is um, a history of Israel. Not, not really. There's a lot of history of Israel found in there. Some would even be so bold as to say, was well, the history of the development of Israel's religion. Well, I guess one could say that. 
But really what it is, is proclamation. It is proclamation, but along the lines of a narrative telling of how God's unfolding plan and promise for his relationship at a personal level with himself through the incarnated Son. So when I think of the Old Testament, I think of it joining hands with the New Testament. Apostles, we use that term, don't we? Prophets and apostles. Hmm. It's proclamation. And that should resonate with Christian readers. Indeed. And uh, Dr. Matthews, I'm hoping that the preachers and Bible teachers who are listening to this podcast Mm. will hear this message clearly. It seems to me, I've not done a scientific study of this, uh, but I've been to church many times. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems to me the vast majority of Christians in the world uh, hear sermons uh, most of the time on the New Testament. Very rarely Mm -hmm. do they get good sermons on the Old Testament. And I wonder why you think that is and whether I can draw you out maybe one step further piggybacking on the answer to the last question you just gave us and and get you to um, give us a, a kind of a strong word about the importance of understanding the Old Testament if we want to understand Jesus and the writings of his apostles. What is it that Christians miss Mm-hmm. when we don't get much preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. Yes. One of the great advantages of our understanding of the way in which God works is a very effective apologetic for the Christian faith because it shows us a continuity in the mind of God and that there is uh, this continuity, this working out, through uh, time and space, through history, of a great arc, overarching narrative, we call it. Mm-hmm. It's a, very much a story, very much a story. And I think all of that is very attractive to the contemporary listener. I fear that uh, we don't help our listeners because we do tend to separate, segregate the old and the new, and uh, we do so in a way that doesn't uh, help them understand that they are part of a great whole. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people talk about finding the true, their true selves, and I'm trying to see where I fit, mm. and all those kinds of questions are resolved in the gospel. Mm. And... Um, I know that Henry Nguyen spoke of um, technology. He was writing in the 70s and spoke of how technology was uh, creating a feature of society that had and was experiencing a historical dislocation. It uh, fuels isolation, and uh, that's not the way God made us. God made us not to be alone, to be in community. And that's what God himself is about. You know, the the sacred society within God himself. And that is um, the beauty of God and the beauty of his people when we find ourselves in that great uh, unfolding way in which God 
makes every piece, every link of his chain critical, important, personal. So I think of a story like Ruth. You know, she was not uh, an educated woman. She was outside the margins as a Moabitess. Well, she was critical as the ancestress of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can point to some of the most uh, remarkable stories that show how God maintained that linkage mm-hmm. from person to person. So uh, we find great illustrations, forerunners of the things we hold dear. Uh, for example, um, when you think about the heroes of Hebrews 11, in other places in the New Testament, they talk about, of course, the faith of these sterling figures. And uh, if there's anything we need in addition to that faith, of course, is courage. These men and women of olden times in the Bible, they lived in a very hostile environment. It took courage to stand in a countercultural way <laughs> to all the pressures and demands from inside Israel and outside Israel not to succumb. And of course they did. That's why we have the prophets. If everybody was doing it the right way, we wouldn't have needed a prophet. Calling them back to the ancient faith of uh, Moses and behind that, Abraham. So we can learn a great deal about how to respond today to the cultural pressures, both within what we might call cultural Christianity and then outside of Christianity. Uh, It kind of bleeds over into what I'm going to be talking about in the lecture series because now I want to talk about the spiritual lives and what we can learn of the the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've been uh, thinking about is how they were so strikingly countercultural. And uh, they lived in violent, very violent circumstances, Uh, especially when Joshua and Israel entered into Canaan. That was the most violent time, but you can go back to the patriarchs, and and so, for example, you have that great war that's described in Genesis 14. Kings of the west, kings of the east engage in battle. In the midst of it, kings of the east, they kidnapped Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and took him, his family, and all his possessions as booty and raced northward and would go eastward. And Abraham had some friends who were in treaty with him, and so they assisted him, and they raced after, and of course secured Lot and his family. And so, um, and then you have that uh, striking piece, as you know, King of uh, Sodom comes out to meet uh, Abraham with all of the um, spoils of that encounter and tries to negotiate 
with Abraham, and he wouldn't have any of it. He didn't mind the uh, helpers, those who were in treaty with him, in league with him, to take a portion. But he himself would not do so. And uh, he said, I'm going to depend upon the Lord for this. I'm not going to give you opportunity to boast in my enrichment. And then there was that mysterious figure not a Hebrew, and he appears. His name was Melchizedek. Oh, the mystery of Melchizedek. And how encouraging it must have been to Abraham. Just think about this. Everywhere he turned, people were polytheists, pagan, and here he was standing here as a person who worshipped the only one true God. How strange and unique. But here was Melchizedek, king of a major city, what we would call a Gentile. And he comes forward. And they have a happy party in the Lord. And they worship the Lord together. How rich and rewarding would that have been to find a kinsman in the Lord. Remember, he left his kinsmen behind. Abraham did. Mm. And in those days, kindred was everything for security, for prosperity, and for hope. But he left that behind. But where did he find it? He found it in people like Melchizedek. Well, listeners, if you heard him say lecture series, he was referring to our biblical studies lecture series that he will be giving this spring. So we're very happy to announce that he is going to be our lecturer for our annual biblical studies lectures. And I'm excited (laughs) to hear what you have to say this spring. And I hope listeners, you're excited and that you will join us on Mm -hmm. campus and as we're listening to you talk about the Old Testament and so much wisdom and passion, I can't help but think that some of our listeners may want to find one of your books mm-hmm. to continue to learn from you. So what would you recommend to them? And then um, I wonder if briefly you can share what you're working on um, in retirement. Okay. I love, I know this sounds strange to many of our listeners, but can you believe there's so much rich teaching to the soul in the book of Leviticus? <laughs> and I wrote a book, Preach the Word series, Kent Hughes. They may know Kent by his many publications of in the series. And uh, I did it on Leviticus. It was one of my most enjoyable Uh, writing projects. You know, for many years I've said to my students and our D-men students, well, if you can preach out of Leviticus, you can preach out of anywhere in the Bible. So I said to myself, well, let's just see if the professor can do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that's what I did in writing this out. So that that would be something they could investigate. If they wanted to get kind of heavy, I have two volumes on Genesis also. And I'm in the process of revising those, a second edition. And so actually that's what I'm working on right now. I have that second volume. The first is at the printer. Should come out uh, 
I guess mid-fall. And uh, that keeps keeps me running in that way. Uh, I'm, I'm teaching a series of 12 Wednesday nights at my church, and we're going to be talking about prayer. Mm. And uh, I, uh, those kinds of things will come uh, to me. Now, Paul House, our professor of Old Testament, he's going to go to the Evangelical Theological Society meetings in November. He's asked me kindly to fill in for his classes. Mm. So, um, you know, have Bible, will travel. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I hate to say it, Dr. Matthews, we're about out of time, but we don't want to end without asking you the question we conclude all of our interviews with. Uh, we want to know what the Lord has been teaching you recently. Uh, we respect you deeply for your learning uh, mm -hmm. with respect to the, the work of the Lord in Old Testament times. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've just heard you're teaching a Sunday school class on prayer mm -hmm. and uh, Christianity and uh, the right worship of the Lord isn't just of mm -hmm. historical interest to you. It's of mm -hmm. present day interest. So what's going on in your life and what are you learning from the Lord even as you retire? I love the expression by Dallas Willard. He says there's no problem with being busy just don't be in a hurry. Hmm. And for our own lives, our own personal lives, if we were going to experience true transformation and in the lives of those who are engaged in Christian ministry, it's okay to be busy, but you can't be busy when it comes to God. Hmm. You can be busy when it comes to the things pertaining to service, but when it comes to knowing him personally and growing in that relationship with him, which is, after all, what we truly seek and need, it, it, is, it takes focused time and energy, and so we have to give ourselves to that time with him. Of course, the Holy Scriptures and then a meditative spirit, an opening of your life to his work. And uh, that is what I've been thinking about in the last year or so. Wonderful word, wonderful way to end this interview. Listeners, you have been in the presence of Dr. Ken Matthews, one of the founding faculty members here at Beeson Divinity School, recently retired after 34 years of teaching mm -hmm. ministry among us. What a blessing he has been and continues to be for us. Stay tuned as we announce and advertise his biblical studies lectures, which will take place in our spring semester. Uh, we want to thank you, Dr. Matthews, for being with us. We want to remind our listeners that we love you and we're praying for you and say goodbye to you for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at BeesonDivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.